I am thrilled to announce that Enactor Despairs is partnering with a wonderful CBD company called Kind Farms. Everyone out there has heard of CBD. I started taking it a few years ago when I first started getting sober and to help with my anxiety. Sadly, as one can do, I was overtraining in the gym, and a friend recommended a topical and a tincture to help with the pain. I tried it. It was okay. However, recently, I was introduced to a product that has really changed my life. Not only has it helped me with anxiety, but I am stronger than I have ever been. I'm able to carry out lifts my body used to prevent me from doing. Kind Farm products have single-handedly changed my life athletically and personally. They utilize 100% local licensed farmers, organic cultivation, and CO2 extraction for superior CBD. Kind Farms is turning CBD to a kind alternative to pharmaceuticals. Let's transform tobacco row into hemp row. If you want to get involved, please reach out. Together, we can make a difference. You can use my code RYAN10 for 10% off. You can find them on Instagram at Kind Farms Inc., all one word. That's K I N D P H A R M S I N C. And their website is kindfarmsinc.com. Once again, my code for 10% off is Ryan10. And now, let's get started with today's show. Welcome to An Actor Despairs. I'm your host, Ryan Perez. We have one of the greatest actresses working right now, Carrie Coon. You know Carrie Coon from projects like Gone Girl, The Leftovers, The Post, and the upcoming film, The Nest, which we're here to talk about. Carrie's had an amazing career in the theater, and she transitioned into film and TV and has been taken off, and she's got Ghostbusters coming out next year. I'm so excited for her. I love you so much, Carrie. Thank you for everything. Here it is. Carrie Coon, welcome to An Actor Despairs. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you, Ryan? I'm good. I'm such a massive fan of yours. And I think you're such like one of the best actresses working right now. And I really, you have the career I dream of. You know, you've been able to really just balance theater and film and mm-hmm. television. And, and you're really hitting such an amazing stride right now, you know, with The Nest and, you know, what you did in Fargo, I thought was incredible and The Leftovers. Mm-hmm. And now you got like Ghostbusters coming out soon. <laughs> no, and it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's really crazy. I marvel at it myself all the time. As you should. Speaking of Marvel, I think, weren't you in Avengers <laughs> yeah, as well? I was. <laughs> I was. Uh, <laughs> now, Adam, I didn't even set myself up there. You could. Yeah. But uh, let's, uh, let's start from Carrie's beginning. So you grew up in Ohio, right? I did. Yes. What was that like? It was pretty uh, American. (laughs) Yeah. I grew up in a small town. Well, it's a small town outside of an urban area. So Copley, Ohio. My parents were both worked a lot. My mom's an emergency room nurse most of my life. And my dad ran our family auto parts store after not becoming a Catholic priest. I had four brothers and sisters. So I have three brothers and one sister. I'm the middle of five kids. Wow. So it was a busy place <laughs> to grow up almost Brady Bunch style then yeah totally yeah, except you know yeah. not a blended family just yeah. straight up but yeah. you know my my family's lived in that town since the 1800s my parents wow. grew up together their siblings all went to school together so it's this we're really very rooted in this town and are they and still there they are still there and all my siblings are back now it was some of them had gone far afield for a little bit but have come back home to roost and I have three grandparents still alive in their 90s wow and everyone's there Everyone's there. I, and I, need, I, your, got I need your jeans, man. Damn. <laughs> I know. We live a long time so far. Knock on wood. With, with, a, with a dad working in the auto industry and, and your mother mm-hmm. being a nurse, talk to me about how the artistic book happened for you. Were, were your parents like big cinema? Like, did, Was that a big family mm-hmm. thing, television? or No. You know, we, we were babysat by the television like so many kids who grew up in the 80s with two working parents. But my parents are also readers. And they're thoughtful people who care about other human beings. When yeah. when I was three, they adopted my sister from El Salvador. They actually went down to El Salvador in the middle of the Civil War and adopted my sister. So she's she's the only adopted sibling I have. Oh, but so they beautiful. really walked the walk. Yeah, they're they're actual Christians, wow. <laughs> not in name only. They believe yeah. that you know, all people should be treated equally, which yeah. we're, we're learning is actually a pretty complicated belief to uphold these days. Yeah. So they were just you know they were readers. And my grandfather, my my maternal grandfather. 
his father had owned a movie house in Akron. So he'd grown up no in way. the movie theater. And he'd done a little bit, he's done a little bit of community theater acting after after World War II. He survived uh, the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. World no War way, II. the Battle of the Bulge. Yeah. And and That's... he actually, because he'd worked in a movie theater, they they wrote, he wrote on his punch card when he enlisted that he was a theater manager and they thought it meant a live theater. So he actually ran a live theater in France when he was stationed there. And, you know, wow. all of these great entertainers came through like Mickey Rooney and um, Bob Hope. He, he got to meet all those guys and That's he played the so trumpet and he cool. ran. Yeah. He was kind of like this, ran the entertainment for the troops in France. So it was really interesting. And then also survived the battle of the bulge. <laughs> so growing up, my grandfather, what we would do, they, we spent a lot of time with my maternal grandparents. They really helped raise us because my parents had to work. And yeah. so we watched movies at their house. We watched old black and white movies. And that's where I saw wow. Sabrina. The and the River Kwai. The classics. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Jeffrey so Horn was, was my exposure. teacher. Oh, Bridge yes. of the River Kwai. Yeah, fantastic. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I can't imagine what that would be like because I haven't had that many teachers. <laughs> um, so I loved I loved those old films and, and I loved the – the classical sensibility. I loved that they were articulate and they were sexy and they were intelligent and the women spoke quickly. And I just, I loved all of that. And then I went to undergrad. I I went to a small school uh, called the university of Mount union to play soccer. I was an athlete in high school and I really wanted to keep playing soccer, but I didn't want to be owned by a university. I didn't want to play any, and I wasn't good enough to play division one. Well, Funny thing, I changed majors probably 10 times. I started off, I think I was a a business and Japanese major for about 10 days. Are you fluent? Not at all. No, I got out of that. I was like my first kanji class. I was like, this is not for me. I'm not smart enough to do this. I hear hear that's a tough one. (laughs) And also business. I was not actually inclined toward business. I just had these ideas about the type of person I was going to be. So I ended up, I ended up in the philosophy department. I was in in the education department. And then I did some, you know, some observations of classrooms and realized I was also not suited for that. Yeah. (laughs) That it takes a really special person to be a teacher. And I was not that. And I um, ended up up getting a degree kind of by default in English literature and in Spanish literature in translation. So I, I have a degree, oh. a double major in English and Spanish. I studied abroad in Spain um, and I have a minor in psychology because I had enough credits for that, but I didn't actually Amazing. study theater, I di- but I took theater classes. We had a very small theater department and I, I was you still getting... audition, even though you weren't. Well, I auditioned for the plays. I yeah. got a role as a freshman. I played Titania in um, in midsummer, you know, oh, I, got, I started getting some role. nice roles, even when I was a freshman, even yeah. though I wasn't really a part of the theater department. Yeah. And so I had a professor, uh, Dr. Hendel, I was shopping out a thesis my senior year that was about language acquisition. I thought I wanted to go on and become a linguist. And I always joke that I'd still be in school right now, if that's what I had done, which I'm sure is true. And my professor said, I think you could go to graduate school for acting. And that was not something I had ever, I didn't know really that people did that. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Did, I mean, I knew that I'd heard of Juilliard and NYU, but I didn't really think about what that meant to go to school for acting. Because to me, school, I think of academic things, you know. I, I just had Glenn Fleshler on the podcast and mm-hmm. I, David Hostel. And I talk about this with all these guys, you know, grad school is something I really dive into on the show. Can mm-hmm. you can you talk to me about that decision? Because similar to me, I didn't really know it was a thing and I went and auditioned and got called back, but then it You're just right. didn't, you know. Well, I did the Erda auditions. Do you know what the Erda auditions oh, are? Oh, the, be- the best. That's where you it's talked so, about them, right? That's that's where you go to school for free. You that's, know, that's more or oh, less. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, you go you go and you do these auditions. And so my, my professor got me ready to go to Chicago and I went with my mom and my grandma and my aunts to the Palmer house in Chicago. And they basically drank martinis in the basement while I got ready for the auditions. And what happens is you audition for for a one round of industry professionals. And if they pass you on to the final round, you then interview for grad school programs and university or resident theater companies. So basically summer stock theater. And I ended up getting called back by Rutgers and the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I did the auditions for Yale and NYU, but they were not interested. Yeah. And I, I ended They're up- They're horrible. <laughs> Even though I went well, to NYU. <laughs> maybe I wasn't ready. Yeah, yeah. 
But what happened was I ended up getting a call from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I was their last resort. I was the last person. I mean, they'd sort of gone through their list, and I was at the bottom of the list. Because at the time that I was auditioning, it was more unusual to go to graduate school right out of undergrad. Most of the actors Oh, you didn't even take a buffer period. No, I didn't, because I wow. didn't know anything about acting. And I didn't, yeah. know any, I didn't have ideas about going to a coast, or Got I didn't it. know how to start. I didn't know anything about it. So I figured that was, you know, getting more education made sense for me. But most of the people I was auditioning against or with had been in the business for a little while because that was more typical. The economy yeah. was better and it was mostly people coming back to get degrees to teach or whatever. Got it. So they, they accepted me. I was the youngest person in a class of 10 actors and we were the only 10 actors for three years. It was one of those capsule programs where they don't wow. have another class. And it was a program that was in flux. They were They were bringing in a bunch of new faculty. They were trying to figure out what kind of program they wanted to be. And we were all figuring it out together. So it was a little bit chaotic. Yeah. It doesn't even, it's not even, it doesn't survive any of the budget cuts. The program is over now. You can't no. go to the University of Wisconsin-Madison grad wow. program. I saw so, that and I was going to ask, like, I didn't know yeah, they had a gone. program. Nobody wow. did. <laughs> it's not yeah. exactly, it didn't exactly. Did they have a repertory time. theater there that you were doing? There was not, mm. no, no, there was nothing like that. I mean, they, yeah. they had sort of gone through, they had had this moment of popularity in the 70s or early 80s where they were focused on Asian movement. Yeah. And people who were specifically interested in that discipline would go to UW-Madison. And in fact, the American Players Theater had this man, who was, which is outside of Madison, Wisconsin, Randall Duck Kim, who had a very specific um, kind of style of training, started this repertory theater company for classic work. And I ended up actually working there. But there was this interesting Asian movement diaspora happening in Wisconsin. And we only had a little bit of that left over when I got there. But most of what I learned was in on the stage doing the plays we did every year. And then I had a great voice teacher named Susan Sweeney, who had come from the Delaware program, which is one of the which was kind of based in Est. You know, it was one of the reputable training programs, um, still is, uh, some great actors come out of there, but it was a very controlled environment and they were doing a lot of actually, I guess, experiments about what the S training would be in the broader world on the actors. So they were using that to develop more S anyway, it's kind of a wacky time. It'd be interesting to talk to somebody about that someday, but she was a great voice teacher and coming from the Midwest, Mm -hmm. my head was not on my body and I had never done voice work before. And I realized I wasn't even, I didn't even know how to breathe. Yeah, And the voice work became really emotional for me and really opened up my, my, my mind-body connection in a way that I think is pretty atypical of growing up in the Midwest. We're just not yeah. connected in this That's, country. And, and I'm curious, you know, as you got in your freshman year, were you aware of like, okay, cool, I have this like bubble of Chicago I could pivot to after graduation? Or was were you not even there yet? You were just... Not even there yet. Yeah. I, I, I really was just immersed in the bubble of graduate school. And what happened... Fortunately, is that we ended up doing a production of Tis Pity She's a Whore in my third year of the program, and a man named David Franks came in to direct it. And David Franks was the artistic director of the American Players Theater in Spring Green, Wisconsin, the place I was referring to with the this sort of Asian movement uh, actor who'd founded it. And he came in, and they had a summer apprenticeship program. And he appreciated my work and thought I was talented, and he invited me to be an intern. Amazing. So that summer, my last year of graduate school. I went to I went to American Players Theater to be an intern. And at that time, the interns were really, we were doing some grunt work. We were doing the changeovers for the sets. And there was a little bit of training on the side, you know, a little bit, a couple of voice yeah. sessions with a teacher. And we were basically supernumeraries. We didn't have a speaking roles. I screamed in every production because I'd done a lot of training for that. So I just blood curdling screams. <laughs> yeah. That was kind of my role for the summer. <laughs> yeah. And played Ermengarde yeah. and, um, you know, what's it called? And just played some annoying ingenues. Anyway. Uh, so it wasn't did, exactly. Did they not have a showcase built in for you guys? Well, and th- so we had the possibility of doing some fundraising. This program called Alfie, and we were responsible for inviting casting directors from other theaters or agents to come all the way out to Spring Green, Wisconsin, see some shows, and see us do monologues or performances or whatever we could work up in our free time. So what happened for me is that there was an agent who came from Chicago, from Grossman and Jack. Her name was Chelsea, and she actually passed my name on to Stuart Talents in Chicago, and I ended up getting a meeting oh. with Sam Samuelson. Yeah, very lucky, right? I, it was a lucky break, and I ended well, up meeting Stu- with Sam Stuart. Sam- is now a huge thing. They I are. Don't think I they mean, have, they, they were always right. Primary in Chicago, they're top dog. In yeah. New York, they're a boutique agency, and I think yeah. they've just started moving into LA. So yeah. in Chicago, 
Stewart is where it's at when it comes to theatrical and I would say TV and film. I, I need to get with them. <laughs> they're great. Yeah, yeah, they're great. And Sam took me on. And so, but what happened was for the next four years, I continued to work at American Players Theater. That's a 10 month contract. Wow. That left me only a couple of months out of the year to be auditioning for commercial and TV and film work in Chicago. So I didn't really get ahead of steam up there for four years. However, all of the directors I was working with at American Players Theater, or most of them, were, Chica- were Chicago-based. So my first play in Chicago, I was cast by a director I'd worked with at APT, right? So the connection started to um, yeah. bear some fruit. So James Bonin at... Um, Remy Bumpo gave me a part in a play called Bronte. And then I ended up auditioning uh, for a role in um, uh, Anna Shapiro had just won the Tony for August Osage County. And she came back to direct at the Goodman. And I ended up being cast in a big ensemble show there based on the cherry orchard called Magnolia. And so that was my second play in Chicago. And then my third play in Chicago was who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. No way. So I didn't actually spend a lot of time coming up through the storefront scene because while all that was happening, that that transition happened over a couple of years, I was not only working at APT, but I'd also built a relationship with the Madison Repertory Theater and I had some relationships in Milwaukee. So all of my theater work was being done in Madison and and Milwaukee. I got to do Anna Christie in Madison. I got to do, you know, Our Town was my last year of grad school, but that was a professional production. So did you leave Wisconsin with your equity card? I guess I got my equity card. Did I get it at APT? I think I got it to do Magnolia at the Goodman. Okay. So it was kind of in the middle of that transition. Um, and in the meantime, when I when I was doing Magnolia and then I was doing uh, when I was doing Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, I started to book commercials. So I had started to learn how to be on camera, which was not part of my training program, by doing commercial auditions, in yeah. which I first started off completely stiff and not moving my face because I thought that's what it meant to be on camera and not speaking too loudly. And then I started to relax because I was going on a lot of them and and started to book. And I. I did Virginia Woolf. I booked a guest star spot on the Playboy Club, and that was my first. I saw that. that yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Well, that was during. So I didn't actually. So that TV and film work started. What happened with Virginia Woolf is it opened in Chicago. We went to the arena stage in Washington, D.C. Right. While we were in the arena stage, uh, Jeffrey Richards, a Broadway producer, came to see it and said, I'm going to produce this on Broadway in 18 months. So I had an 18 month break where I went back to Chicago, did plays, and that's when I booked Playboy Club. So I did my first guest star spot, a bunch of commercials, and three or four more storefront plays. And then Virginia Woolf went to Broadway. Wow. And then my whole life changed. And that's when everyone, you know, Spielberg yes. and all of them are coming to see you. Yeah, well, they, he did. <laughs> but Ellen Lewis did, who's a great um, director in New York. Martin Scorsese. That's yeah. right. And she yeah. championed, she was the one who got me in the room for the leftovers. And she was the one ultimately that put me in the post as well. But um, That's she amazing. was really the reason why I got the leftovers, which was my first big TV show. And talk to me about like, you know, coming on a, a show like that, you know, with Justin mm-hmm. Thoreau, Damien, you know, was that Liv Tyler, you know, was, was, do you feel like that was your film school in some ways? Well, actually the, the chronology is such that I, we did the Tony Awards in New York, the leftovers that was in July, the leftovers pilot shot, I believe in August, or maybe it was, we shot in July. So I had already booked the leftovers. When I went home to Chicago, I booked gone girl off of a tape in my living room. Wow. I I ended up going back to Chicago, booking gone girl. So I actually flew out to LA for the first time ever to meet with David. Um, Fincher. And I yeah. had my audition with Lorraine Mayfield casting in LA. And I also booked a guest star spot on a CBS show. So I came home, sh- I, I <laughs> go out to LA, book Gone Girl, come back home, repack my bag, go back to LA, shoot a guest star spot. Then I went to New York to shoot the pilot. No, wait, that's not true. I shot the, so I booked Gone Girl, came back, shot the pilot of The Leftovers in New York. Yeah. And then I started Gone Girl. Got so it. I didn't do Leftovers till after Gone Girl was over. That's what I, no. that whole diatribe was just getting me to that point. Got so it. I actually, my film school was on the set of Gone Girl with David Fincher. That's real film school, you know, a hundred, yes. ta- hundred takes, 100%. you know. Yeah. Yeah. What was and that I, like working well, with Well, I've never made and, a movie before, Ryan. That was my yeah. first movie ever. How did it so feel? It was terrifying and it was wonderful. Did you have someone that kind of like, hey, you know, come with me. I got you. Was there someone that kind well, of. Well, the, the miracle of that job was that. I was surrounded by people who are Kim Dickens, who plays Boney, and that has become one of my dearest friends. So Kim Dickens, Patrick Fugit, um, uh, Lisa Baines, all of those actors on that set were so excited for me and were so 
generous and helpful. And we were on location in Cape Girardeau, Missouri together for several weeks staying in this hotel. And Ben, you know, Ben has a very different life than ours. So he had to sort of stay off. Yeah. He can't go out on the streets. Right. Yeah. So it was, so it took a little bit more time for for Ben. I mean, Ben and I had a great rapport right from the jump. We were both you know, he was happy to have a sister for the first time. And I have three brothers. So we found, we found oh, a really easy, sarcastic rhythm. And so that was fun. But Ben was really great. You know, Ben would often say, hey, this shot's really tight. So make sure you don't move. But what really happened, and this is a story that, that David doesn't really remember. David Fincher doesn't remember this story, but I've told it. It's become this sort of legendary story in my, my uh, biography. But there, the first time we were shooting a scene in Cape Girardeau, I, I didn't know any of the vocabulary of being on a set or shooting on camera. And I remember yeah. he was trying to get better screen direction in the shot. And I didn't know what screen direction was. And David can be really pres- prescriptive. He, he will tell you a series of actions. It's like, first you pick up the magazine, you look at, then you look up, then you say your line, then you put the magazine down, then you look down. You know, there's this order of things sometimes. Not every shot is like that. And he was trying to make this adjustment and, and he, he needed me to like lift my head in a certain way. And I wasn't doing it right because I didn't know what he was trying to do. I didn't yeah. understand what screen direction was. And he finally said, you can't do it. And he kind of gave up on me in that moment. And I was like, oh, you know, devastated, embarrassed, yeah. filled with shame nervous. But I I actually went up to him and I said, you know, when you hired me, you hired someone who's never made a movie before. And I said, if I don't, I don't always understand what you're asking for, but if you explain to me what it is, then I can do it. Yeah. Now, maybe in my memory, this, you know, this is a much more cogent monologue than the one I did. (laughs) David, David was absolutely receptive to that. And from that day on, he would say, come here, look at this. See this frame? This is why I need you to glide out on your right foot. Okay, go. And he taught, and he would, he taught me so much about being on camera. And And once you work with him, you can work with anyone because it's so technical. That's right. And the thing about David is he's a perfectionist. That's all. And he's, he's got great. I I think of him like an athlete. He has amazing field vision. He can see every element at yeah. the same time, he's got this amazing ability to take it all on. And so you can't make it about you or you're sunk because then yeah. you get in your own way. You got, you know that as an actor, if you start to feel insecure, there's no way to do your best work. No, never works that and way. And so you can't make it about you. Now, yeah. it will be very obvious when it is about you because David yeah. will keep pounding you until you get it right. But that means at the end of every day, you walk away knowing that he got what he needed, yeah. that you left it on the table. And you're, you've left nothing to chance and that David Fincher has what he needs to make the movie he's making. And that's a very satisfying way to work. And I don't, I didn't care if I had to do a hundred takes. I wanted to, I wanted to be good and yeah. I was learning and I would have done it every time. And you don't do a hundred takes every time. Sometimes you do five. Yeah. Sometimes you do 21. Sometimes you do 50, but, um, I learned so much. And then I went back and started on the leftovers. And now, you must have been like, I, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> I did accept yeah. that. A David Fincher movie moves very slowly and TV moves very fast. Yeah. So I remember the first day on set after three or four takes, the director's like, okay, great. We're moving on. I was like, wait, wait, I was just warming up. What I, did, I didn't at? even hit it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, just, I was just getting started. Yeah. So I had to make the adjustment of knowing that we had to get what we were getting more quickly, which is a less perfect process. It's not as satisfying to do TV in that way. If you don't, if you don't deliver the goods, but they're moving on anyway, that sucks, yeah. but it yeah. happens a lot. And so you have to be prepared. You have to be ready because you don't get as many takes. That's so cool to work from those two polarities because then you really know, okay, I can mm-hmm. find the middle ground going forward. You That's know? right. And, That's and right. What, what did it feel like, you know, you know, cause while you're shooting the leftovers, you shoot these things and they take, you know, forever to come out, but then, you know, Gone Girl comes out and it's the biggest movie of that year. Mm-hmm. And it's shot out of a cannon. What, what did it feel like for you as an artist, as an actress, to be attached to that? Was that chaotic, you know? Or Well, it was, you know, for me as an actor, what was instructive about it, firstly, is that what actually happened is that The Leftovers started premiering before Gone Girl came out. So okay. as an actor in process, I saw that I had actually gotten better, right? I was actually more subtle, uh, a little less broad on camera during that. And I got better as the season went on, in my opinion, you know, yeah, watching my own yeah, work. And I think totally. it's important to watch your own work. And then Gone Girl came out and all I could see was like myself making big faces. You know, I felt like I was terrible in that film because I had gotten better. Yeah. I since, see. since being in Gone Girl. Well, but you were great the, in that film. You're well, in thank your head. You, yeah, thank you. Yeah. I mean, look, I was, I was, I, like I say, I learned so much and everybody was really, really good and kind to me. And it was a good fit. You know, that was yeah. a great fit of actor and role. And so was Nora. 
Yeah. So I actually also was, was, you know, the right person for those jobs at that time. So, um, but to have the, I mean, to suddenly be having a premiere like that in my life, this girl from the Midwest was pretty extraordinary. And I think it was pretty, un, pretty wacky for my family to go through. We actually yeah. had a hometown premiere where my, my brother runs a Regal Cinema. He's a GM. And so he actually organized a hometown premiere where I came home and got in an SUV limo with my grandparents oh. and my mom and dad and like got out in front of all of my elementary school teachers and my friends from high school. Like everyone I'd ever known was there. It was like I was in purgatory. That's so And cool. I was wearing this dress that my dad's friend had designed and we we and then I sat behind my grandma and my character says fuck every line and my Catholic grandmother was just like wincing oh, in man. front of me. And also it was deadly silent. No one laughed the whole time because it's just, yeah. I don't know, Midwestern Reserve. So I think for them, I mean, it was just wild to have me become and, and for me, you know, most of that stuff exists on the internet. My life has changed not at all. I don't get recognized on the street. Every now and then Soon. somebody recognizes me. I don't think so. I've, no. been already, I've already been in Avengers and Gone Girl and Fargo and no one recognized me. Maybe Ghostbusters. But nobody cares about the mom in Ghostbusters. No, they will. Trust me. Ghostbusters is a huge <laughs> franchise. But I'm, I'm, I'm curious, you know, as, as, a, as an artist, mm-hmm. when you have two hits like that, I imagine you have some wiggle room in, in what you want to do. What was interesting to carry then after, you know, the leftovers in Gone Girl, these mm-hmm. big hits – what made you, you know, what, how did you kind of navigate what scripts you wanted to do going forward? Well, if I'm honest, when, after Gone Girl came out, I didn't get a job for a while. And that was partly a function of, so I had moved away. I, I had, I had transitioned to another agency in New York. Once, once I was on Broadway, a larger agency took me on in New York city. And I didn't get what I needed after Gone Girl came out, and I ended up changing agents again. And so I, I signed with UTA. Back down smaller or back no up, bigger. Uh, I, bigger. I got so one of the things that helped that it helped me do Gone Girl was transition me to a larger agency. And say what you want about the business, you're only as good as your access to opportunity. Yeah. And if at a smaller boutique agency, you're only getting scripts that everybody ahead of you has turned down. Yeah. And so now at a larger agency, I did know more about some of the bigger projects that were coming out, but I was not, I'm not still on the list of the top, you know, 20 women they're going to offer these leading roles to in a major oh, studio it's film. Coming. It's so coming. I, well, I've had to fight for things, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Fargo was one of the first jobs where I actually got an offer just after a meeting. I did an audition. That and was amazing. Shay, Shay Wiggum's one of my best friends. He is. Yeah. Yeah. I, Love, I'm I'm in the Shea Wiggum, you know, family fan club. I just love oh, Shea so much. Oh, he's the best. What was he it is like? The best. You got nominated for an Emmy for that. You know what? Oh, yeah. And working with Ewan and 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 uh, Mary, well, and like you know what? What an iconic cast. How was that experience? Indeed. Well, look, Noah Hawley. I, I, he's, he's not only is he an extraordinary writer who's able to enter the world that we're living in obliquely and give us some distance from which to examine it. He also is really brilliant when it comes to casting. He just has a great instinct. So everybody was a really great fit and nobody was an asshole. And we just, I really loved that group and Mark, Mark forward and Shea Wiggum and I really became quite tight. And those guys, I just love those guys. I mean, I spent probably more time with them than, than anybody else on set because just because of the way the, the script bro- broke down, you know, we totally. didn't all work together. Yeah. And so um, that was just a, uh, that was a real gift because it was also, we had five or six scripts before we started shooting, which is very, wow. un- was unusual in my previous experience, the leftovers, we would sometimes get script a couple of days before we started shooting. So to have that much time to prepare and also as an actor, which is yeah. your primary interest, the process was different in that so many of the, the elements of building a character in Fargo are exterior. You have yeah. an accent, you have this costume you have this cold yeah. the environment is such a big part of it so so i found that my process for fargo was very outside in which is just a different you have a lot of access to some very tangible character building um tools if you don't mind me like asking that. you know because it's a it's a real common trap actors fall into is how did you get to the point where you were so comfortable with the accent where you weren't <laughs> well, acting went, the accent where you were okay. just acting you know, well, I went to school in Wisconsin, yeah, yeah, and and so I was true. actually I was accidentally picking up that accent while I was in school. Wow. <laughs> so you had it in your. your I did, school. and you yeah. know, and accents, you know, they move from west to east. So Ohio is actually starting to pick up some of those sounds too. You're starting to hear that 
those sound shifts happening further on the East Coast. Yeah. So it wasn't that. Uh, un- but also remember, I was a linguistics major. Ah. I was, so my one of my real my major interests, just as a hobbyist, is in language and language acquisition and how accents work. So I'm really nerdy about that stuff. I love accent work, and I always try to do my accent work really early so that it doesn't feel like I'm just yeah. putting it on as soon as I walk. So I, I don't want to think about it. Yeah, I just don't want to have that be the thing I'm thinking about when I'm doing a scene. So thank you for that. That's a great compliment. I'm glad. No, you, I'm glad course. you didn't feel like it was self conscious. No, it was amazing. And, and before we jump into the post, you know, I'm I'm curious. Were you always, as you started to really start working, were you always like, I got to make sure I make time for theater? Was that always imperative yes, to you? It was because that's the kind of, I, that's where I come from. That's my, yeah. that's my root experience. And the thing that I think is important about theater, if you're a theater actor, is that it's a real touchstone for the work in, in that, what I mean by that is, you know, you go through a rehearsal process in the theater and there's a director and there's a playwright, a living or dead, and then they go away. And every night it's your job as the actor to go out and tell the story without anybody else telling you, for example, on a film set, when the director's like, okay, we got it. It's up to you. You are the arbiter of taste. And I think that's a really important muscle because I think it helps you when you get on a film and TV set, make, to make choices. You feel empowered to make choices and your choices are appropriate to the project you're working on. They're, they're tasteful. Yeah. And I don't mean tasteful, like they're small. I just mean that they're appropriate for the environment that you're in. And I think theater is great training ground for that because it's your responsibility. And for the actors listening, you know, obviously I know Chicago and New York are huge. Any advice you would give them on people that are looking to dial into theater? You know, I mean, I know we're in the middle of a pandemic, but, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, for those that don't live in New York or Chicago, any, right. any words of wisdom? Well, theater's everywhere. And, yeah. I, and my advice would actually be more geared toward people who are thinking of getting into the business and thinking about skipping theater and going right to TV and film. Yeah. I would just say, don't discount what that training gives you, because when you're acting in a theater space, you have to act with your whole body. Yeah. And there's no better preparation for act, for acting anything than having to use your whole body in space and telling a story with your whole body in space. Because, you know, so often I think if, if you don't get that training, TV and film is so focused on the head yeah. that you don't really have the weight of your body under you. And I just think it limits your choices. I just think you're, you don't have, I don't think you have as many tools in your toolbox. Now, yeah. of course, there are exceptions to everything, but I of just course. think that it's, yeah. And also just even people also, I think, underestimate what that voice training in the theater gives you. When I was working at APT, I had to fill an 1100 seat house and I had to fill it truthfully. And as a a woman with a small body, I had to figure out how to resonate my body in in a big space. And so now there are so many instances on a TV and film set as a woman where I have to cry. And you have to remember, you might be doing that scene for hours now in wow. theater, you do that scene once a night. You build up, yeah. to it, you cry, you scream, and then it's over. Yeah. But on a film set, you might have to do it at three a.m. and you might have to scream and cry for two and a half hours because of all yeah. the other things that are matching it. And there are actors who lose their voices; they can't do it. And I've heard directors on TV sets say, "Well, we'll probably only be able to do this a few takes because there's no way the actor can sustain this." But yeah. I can. I can scream and yeah, cry and yeah, yell yeah. for hours, <laughs> right? And I can repeat something without losing my voice. I love that because you're so well-trained and, you, and you're so talented. It matters. Thank well, you. Talk to me then. How, how did the post come your way? So Ellen Lewis, as I mentioned before, is a great casting director in New York City. Yeah. And she was the one who put me on tape for Damon Lindelof and got me the leftover because she'd come to see Virginia Woolf because great casting directors go see theater. They yeah. look for the new talent that's coming up through the theater. And Ellen does that. And she, of course, was casting that for Steven. And my husband and I were both called in for, for parts. Um, and I had, I had sort of, I, they were looking at me potentially to play Tom Hanks, wife or to play Meg Greenfield. And of course, Sarah Paulson was being, you know, Sarah Paulson got to say what she wanted to do because <laughs> she's Sarah Paulson. And yeah. I, you know, I adore her and totally respect her and she's an amazing actor. So, um, so, you know, it was almost like the, in some ways the, the part of Meg Greenfield is small and it, it doesn't actually represent uh-huh. in the movie, what Meg Greenfield's very interesting life was like. Yeah. So if I'd had my choice, I would be, have been making a biopic about Meg Greenfield, yeah. but because Ellen Lewis says, you know, we want you to come in and play this, um, this part that I, I did audition for it. It wasn't an offer. I had to go into her 
office and read. Um, but of course, who's going to turn down the opportunity to work in a Steven Spielberg movie, which is a, you know an actor yeah, because with of with Tom Hanks? Like, how did that Tom feel? Hanks and Meryl Streep? Yeah, it felt great because here's the thing: Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep have been making movies for decades. Yeah, and the thing that's really I think remarkable about them as artists is that they still love it, and that's the same. The same is true of Steven Spielberg. On a set, my experience of Steven Spielberg is that he's very childlike and filled with wonder at what they're doing. That's now that doesn't mean he's not exacting and that he doesn't know what he wants and isn't afraid to just be very forceful about getting it. But yeah. his overall energy is so celebratory of actors. So the energy of that set was about keeping the actors at ease so we could do our best work. You know, it wasn't a know, Michael Bay set. Tom Hanks is joking. Yeah. You know, Tom is, is very enrolling and he's, he's always trying to make everybody in the background feel included. And yeah. Meryl Streep is someone who's a real person who's, yeah. you can have a conversation with her about the New Yorker article she's reading. And then when she gets up to do her work, she's just staying relaxed. She's staying relaxed in between takes and every take is a little different or a lot different. And so it was really, it was really fun to watch her. And I got to do a scene with her that, that ended up getting cut out of the movie. Cause it wasn't, you know, didn't really forward the plot very much, but it was great to get to work with her in that capacity and to watch that. Um, but she's, like I said, she's just, they're both just really down to earth people. And so they set the tone. And then I was surrounded by all the other great, you know, great theater actors in New York theater. That's yeah. who was in that movie. So all those people I had seen on stage or I had worked with, and it was just sort of a real who's who of New York theater. It's just a snapshot of, you know, a and, certain and segment of New York theater. I'm curious to ask you, you know, for, for, you mentioned that was you, you did have to audition for, you know, actors listening that get those big auditions. How did you, you know, not get caught up in like, Oh my God, Tom Hanks, Meryl Streep, Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks, Meryl, you know, like, mm -hmm. and like, you know, was it, it was a self tape or did you go see Alan? In I went person? into Alan's office. I went oh, and wow. a good, and a good casting director tells you yeah. if, you're, if you're getting it done. And yeah. I remember that day, I think I'd had a lot of stuff going. I think I'd been really busy. I can't remember exactly what I was working on or press or maybe it was pilot season. I can't remember what was going on, but I remember I had been really busy and stressed out and my husband and I had been apart most of that year. And there's just a lot going on in my life. And I remember I wasn't quite settled into that audition and yeah. Ellen could tell, and she gave me time. She gave me time to kind of, you know, find my footing in that, in that room. And that's what a relationship with the casting director affords you is that opportunity. And it's, I think it's a shame that it feels to me that the business is shifting away from their expertise. Yeah. And while making self tapes gives everyone a chance yeah. to throw in for a job and they don't have to live on the coast anymore. And I think that is a great equalizer and I support it. It's just too bad that we're not that along with it comes that, that, you know, they're not, they're not, uh, they're not the ones who are curating those, yeah, those lists anymore. Well, and I also, unless really they're working for a Scorsese wor worry, even in this post pandemic vaccination environment that mm. like, will we ever go back to being in the room or is it just going to be this mm -hmm. digital self tape world? You it know? seems like it's, I mean, I remember even when I was out in LA or recently, I feel that there are many casting agencies who don't even have tape rooms anymore. They're just accepting self-tapes. Wow. And I think that is the future, which is too bad because yeah. Ellen Lewis's feedback is how I ended up doing better and getting that job. You know? And that's how you build rapport. You know, you can't, mm -hmm. you can't build rapport through a self-tape because that's right. they're not like, how's your day? You know, right. and, you know <laughs> even with Gone Girl, you know, yeah. Lorraine Mayfield, so, I didn't think anybody was going to see my tape. Yeah. For that. But Lorraine Mayfield saw my tape, plucked it out of a pile and put it in front of the people who mattered. And if they're not responsible for that, I just don't know how, you know, how the actors sort of get separated, the wheat from the chaff, as they say. I think they're just anyway, it'll be interesting to see how the business continues to change in that regard. Well, but, but casting directors have been a huge part of my career. Um, same, same to me. So many. Um, before we dig into the nest, you know, I, I do have to ask. The Marvel world. What what was it like being in that? Was that was that fun? Was that mm. you know? It's it's interesting. It's a yeah. different challenge because it's actually quite lonely in so many ways for the actors who are that. not top billing. Yeah, because those jobs are multi year jobs and they have to work around these celebrity schedules. They're massive machines, and they're and like three hundred fifty so million dollar budgets. Enormous yeah. budgets. Yeah. And, and for that reason, I did not get to act with any scene partners. I'm just jobbed in. I was doing a play in New York. I was pregnant and doing a play in New York. They flew me to Atlanta to work for about eight hours on the set. So I got about 25 minutes with a movement coach and then 
they threw me into the mocap. And, and so I, I could actually see myself moving as the character, you know, as a sort of model of the character on a screen, but I don't that, have it. Was that helpful else. to be able to see that? Sure. Because you can yeah, see when you're yeah, doing it poorly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I also didn't know, you know, like there's like, where do I look when I'm speaking? Oh, oh, oh. Cause you're in this, you know, you're just in this box and they're able to manipulate space. So in some ways it doesn't matter to them where I'm looking, but as an actor who's trying to be truthful, when I say Thanos will have that stone, it really matters that I'm talking. <laughs> Sorry. And, and you don't really no, it's yeah. funny. It's true. It's, yeah. it's not to me. It's not scene work. Yeah. Scenes happen between people, and it, that's I not appreciate what that job the candor is. on that. Yeah, well, it's no, the truth. And, yeah. yeah, it's the yeah. truth. And and also you have this obstacle of like you have a camera that's mounted to your shoulders and your head, so you have a camera that's moving with you like this. I'm showing you. No, yeah. your podcast people can't see it, but yeah. you know it's a couple feet in front of your face, and so. So when you're swinging a foam stick around and you hit your camera, I mean, there are just some <laughs> very specific challenges, Yeah, not the least of, of which is, you know, in a mocap suit, having to pee because you're pregnant. And every time oh, you pee, you have to like do a ROM again. You have to like reconfigure the suit anyway. So it was really, amazing. It was really intense. But, um, and, but of course, most of the performance comes from the 200 plus editors who are. Yeah. And all together. the graphics and mm-hmm. all the amazing work. Yeah. Well, that's so and cool I'm mostly that... just making faces. Yeah. Well, beautiful faces. But Thanks. talk to me. Talk to me about the nest. How did this come your way? I was in England visiting friends at the day after Brexit, and I was having brunch and my with my husband's old friend Rose Garnet, used who used to be at Film Four, and now she runs BBC Films. Oh and yeah, it had... is a BBC film. I forgot. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. she was, um, she was, uh, she was having a little family brunch. My husband's known the Garnet sisters for decades and invited to that brunch was Sean Durkin and his wife and their new baby. And Sean and I, and I love like, Sean's films. I mean, uh, John, he's, yeah. he's such, he has such a specific vocabulary Yeah, and come to find out Rose had designs because she knew that Sean had this script called the nest. So Sean and I ended up having another meeting, a more formal business meeting about a year later about that and some other things. Oh, so and there was some time between there the was a little me- bit of time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Because okay. I think, you know, part of that was just trying to get financing for that, yeah. film, which is a small. And, and, and was Jude so, always attached? No, oh. no, he was not initially. Oh, um, okay. There was another actor they had been talking to, but then he had a family situation come up and they were like, well, who is this person? And I think we ended up, you know, the fact that, that Jude was willing to even read this independent film script and come on board was pretty incredible for us because he's actually really perfect for the part. Part. Yeah, he is he? He's, is, he's, he's charming he's like, in the way that Rory is charming, and he and there's so much theater to him. You know, he's like Blanche yes. Dubois meets Willie <laughs> Loman. You know what I mean? But he's a working class guy. <laughs> yeah, you know, much like the character he plays. Jude comes from a working class family, and he would tell you that it's much harder for guys that come from where he comes from to get into acting school in London. Uh, I, I have had many podcasts about the British mm-hmm. aristocracy and acting yeah. and all the yep the with a lot of famous people yeah, yeah. So, so like you yeah. know jude law and chris eggleston those guys came out of a time when that was a little bit more accessible to yeah them. it's changed a lot yeah so he's the perfect guy for the part and so um you know they were they were rightly concerned that with me attached they weren't gonna be able to get enough money to make a film because i don't sell tickets in china or anywhere else and they Even had with a, an independent movie they're concerned no about no china. i mean i get a lot of that's not to say i get a lot of offers to do independent films yeah and because they're not they're not that's not where their money's coming from necessarily but it's just they needed a movie star to get that movie made and i'm not a, i was not and am not still a movie star that gets it's, made. it's happening in ghostbusters we'll see yeah. but for an but when they were trying to get financing for the nest, they knew they had to sign a big name or we weren't going to get a budget that was going to let us make the film we wanted to make. And so Jude coming on was a really big deal. Um, and Sean, much like, uh, you know, Sean is really great at casting and he found Charlie and Una who are amazing actors. A lot of their performance was cut out just because of the way they had to edit the story to make the most That's sense. your children? My children. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. yeah. Charlie Shotwell and Una Roach. Yeah. And they, they, I, I'm sad that so much of that's on the cutting room floor because the script itself, the way it's written is so specific. The relationships are so specific. Yeah. So I was really eager to dive in because to me, it was about an egalitarian marriage. Yeah. They're, they're well-suited and you don't see marriage dealt with in this way. Yeah. It's about the tacit agreements in marriage. And I just don't see movies like that. Yeah. It's always about divorce or death. Yeah. So, how, um, I was, how, how was filming it, you know, at this English so manner. Fun. 
Yeah. It was so much fun. We started up in Toronto. We actually did. Um, Toronto was where the United States portion of the film was shot. I got and it. I did a little bit of horse riding training up there. I'd done some in New York. I did a little bit more in Toronto. And then when we got to London, we shot in and around London for a, a couple of weeks. And then we moved up to the country, into the manor house. And that's a place called Nether Winchenden. They, they do a lot of weddings there. Um, I was going to say, it looks like, like Bruce Wayne's home or it's, something. It's extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's, yeah. there's architecture in that house from the 12th, 12th and 13th centuries. Oh, my God. The village God. is so old. And there are secret Did you stay there? there while you know you... <laughs> the family the family actually was still living there i mean they still oh, live there. Okay. so got it you'd be shooting a scene and, and robert the the you know the patriarch would suddenly pop through a cabinet you know, be like, a, you're in frame bro can you get it yeah, and like, oh, i just needed to grab my wallet and, and they, they would literally like walk out of a secret passageway it was so funny and strange that's so, so bizarre and, and we made it. the house look sort of run down but it's actually a beautifully kept house um but the the grounds i mean i would just go for a walk when i wasn't shooting and i was riding horses out there i was training with the devil's wow. horsemen who are the premier uh horse trainers and stunt people in europe they do all of you know the crown and game of thrones and actually yeah. my horse was was tornado who's john Snow's horse on Game of Thrones. I was going to say a brilliant actor. The way the horse, uh, I, I can't. <laughs> well, I don't eight, want to spoil eight it. Horses. <laughs> eight but different horses. When those everyone watches the movie, you will see why it's Jon Snow's horse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He does all the close-ups. He does yeah. all the close-ups. So it was really, it was as an actor, it was so much fun because I didn't, I don't have any of that training. I mean, I rode horses on farms when I was growing up, but I didn't actually train in an equestrian style. So that was, it's always fun as an actor. One of my favorite parts yeah. of the job is getting invited to learn something new. And that was extraordinary. For me. And I had, my, I had a little baby. I had an, I started shooting that I think when my son was eight months old. So I was also a new mom wow. and I had much less time to prepare, but I'd never played a mom as a mom before. So that was yeah. my first movie where I got to actually. Was your husband there able to take care? Or no, you... my husband had to go shoot. Um, what was he Ford Ferrari? He might've been doing Ford v Ferrari. Then. Yeah, he, actually, yeah. he might've been in California. So I actually was just with a nanny and my son in London wow. um, for weeks without my husband. And so it was, uh, it was hard. I didn't, I so I didn't have time to prepare yeah. for the nest. I yeah. didn't actually do it a hell of a lot. If I'm honest, yeah. just had to like learn the lines and hope that if I showed up, oh, it's such a pleasure. Great actors. That, that's why you're such, I, I talk about this on the podcast all the time. The difference between good acting and great acting is good acting. People play a personality and great acting. Nobody else could have played that role. And you mm. are a oh, great actress. You. Like it was, Man, that's so, it was sweet. so amazing. That character is, I, I know her well. I've met many mothers like her. Mm. You know? Yeah, she's really, I really liked the com the complexity and I, I, I applaud Sean for writing something. That, it's not easy. You know, the, the, the dynamics he's writing in that script are not easy things and, yeah. and it's not an easy movie in many ways, and, but I, and, um, I love its complexity. And for those listening, you know, I, I, I know we're in the middle of a global pandemic. What's the mm -hmm. distribution plan? Do you know, is it video well, on demand? Yes. Yeah. We, we, so we're having a, we're having a premiere. We actually are coming out in theaters, um, September. Oh gosh. September 18th, I think, is our release date. Theaters yeah. in America? Yeah. They actually, oh. IFC did some smart stuff. They actually acquired a couple of drive-ins. Oh. Um, and I, I think we are that. coming out in some other, in some big theaters, too. Got and, it. Um, and then I live in New York actually, City, of course, so they're yeah. not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. They're being really responsible there. Yeah. Um, my husband's Regal Cinema in, in Ohio is open now. But... Um, they and then we're going to have a video on demand release because they, you know, IFC very intelligently recognized that we had to we had to have that platform available as well, and so they've yeah. organized a release in November. So we will go VOD, and it's I think the information's already on our website, the Nest. Maybe it's the nestmovie.com or the nest.com, but you can find just IFC the Nest, and that that should yeah, you'll find it. Mm -hmm. Well, can you? Uh, I know I ruined the surprise at the beginning that Ghostbusters <laughs> is in the future, but can you talk about what else is in in the future for you? Oh, well, I mean, our business has essentially ground to a halt, but yeah. um, I am going to start work on the Gilded Age in a couple of weeks, which I'm really looking forward to. Doing a period piece has always been yeah. a secret. We'll have to grab coffee in New York. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That'd be really fun. Yeah. Um, and and of course, uh, th since the New York theater is shut down, once again, the, the Gilded Age is populated by all these extraordinary New York theater actors that I can't wait to work with. Some of them in musical theater, so I wouldn't get to work with them because I'm wow. not talented enough. So that'll be a lot of fun. And, you know, they also have had extra time because of the pandemic to do the costumes. So there's a lot more hand beating. Amazing. <laughs> like, yeah, the level of detail is is astonishing. And they're being really responsible and very upfront about their protocols. So I'm hopeful that... 
it's it's just it's not going to feel like a set normally feels. We don't get the casual interaction to build the yeah. family dynamics that we we normally get. But you are know, you we'll guys going to quarantine together before filming? Or? No, I mean it's New York. They don't have that kind of control over yeah. crews and cast. So we just have to we just have to have testing and yeah. PPE. And you know, as the actors, we're the ones who are unmasked on a set. Yeah. So we and the people who interact with us are the most at risk for transmission. So it's it's a little bit um, intimidating to to go back so soon to be one yeah. of the first productions back because there's a big learning curve. But I do trust that the people in charge are responsible and thoughtful, and they all want to be safe too. So you know it's um, it's encouraging, and I appreciate what HBO is doing as a company to accommodate um, you know the demands that are that are that they're feeling pressure in our industry to. Um, really be conscious about inclusiveness and diversity. And they've made some changes in our scripts. They've brought on Erica Dunbar, who's an amazing historian um, to, to work with Julian. And Julian's really open to, to all of that feedback. He's a very collaborative uh, artist. And and I really appreciate that about Julian and he's really good at what he does. So I'm excited to be a part of it. It's, I'm excited that, so that, for you. And then my husband's play, The Minutes, Keep a Good Thought, will come back to Broadway in the spring. But we And, and we should not to name drop, but your your husband is Tracy Letts, the great. <laughs> yeah. He's great. He great. He's great. I love him so much. He's so talented and I'm so proud of uh, of his play. Uh, and The Minutes, I'm hoping that that's going to get recorded so it can be disseminated around the country because it's yeah. such a timely piece of art about kind of the political moment we're in, but not not about it um, explicitly in a really just in a really smart way tangential way so i hope that becomes widely available because we're both people who grew up in small towns and the only way we yeah, got to see me too yeah. that kind of stuff was when it was on video you know yeah so well, final question for you carrie you know for all the uh the wide-eyed carries out there in the world that are you know maybe at undergrad and aren't happy with what they're studying and aren't interested in this acting thing i know earlier you said mentioned study theater but any other words of wisdom you might give i don't them? think I think um, what's more important than studying theater is having a full life because those experiences will make you a better artist. So while I do appreciate the training that I've received, what's been most useful as a, as an actor is the life that I've lived. So studying abroad, going to El Salvador, reading books and and Mm -hmm. putting myself in other people's shoes um, being my, my dad always taught me growing up that, I always had something to learn from someone and approaching every interaction with an open mind, I think is good exercise for being generous and loving to the characters that you'll play. Authentic life experience, you know? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I totally agree. And then ultimately, you know, you learn by doing. And and if you move to a place like Chicago, there are, before the pandemic, we had over 200 storefront theaters in Chicago. You can always get experience and, and you learn by doing it. Yeah. You know, you learn by doing it first and foremost. So beautiful. Carol, thank you so much for coming on this show. Thank you I for having me, Ryan. So fucking excited for you. I can't oh, wait till Ghostbusters comes out and you're a massive movie star. And oh, I can boy. email well, we'll you see. and say, I told you so. <laughs> and let's say, me and Shay are getting together yeah. for some, some oysters. Yeah. You want to Yeah, exactly. Out? And and let's get coffee when you're in New York, six Sounds feet good. apart. And yeah, yeah. I'm we'll sending you so much love. Walk. Yeah. Thank you, Ryan. I can feel it. I really yeah. can. I really appreciate that. Thank you for coming on. Means the world. Okay? My pleasure. All right. Much love. If you like the show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening. 